Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Mike Casey, president and founder at TigerCom. TigerCom is the leading clean economy, marketing, and public affairs firm in the U.S. If you haven't caught on, today we are going to be talking about, in general, communications, public relations, and why this is such a big deal not only for energy, but really for the entire clean economy and really in all spaces of life. So Mike, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to TigerCom. Well, thanks, Joe, for having me. I am a 37-year veteran of the communications industry. I spent 10 years in politics, then 12 years in the environmental community, And then for the last 15 years, I've been working to help clean economy companies grow and succeed. Thank you for that introduction. I am curious, where does the name TigerCom come from? That's a good question. Well, we we listed at the very, very bottom of our website in the fine print. But essentially, when I started the firm, I did not want it to be named after me because I wanted it to be bigger than to be about something that was bigger than me. So we realized that when you do conservation work, if you save the megafauna, the really large apex predators, you save a lot of stuff underneath them. And in the world right now, the biggest, uh, most dominant apex predator in the world is the Siberian tiger. So we tithe 1% of of our profits every year to Siberian tiger conservation. And the old slogan used to be to move with speed, agility, and power. That's, we've migrated away from that, but the name stuck. It's fairly memorable and seems to have worked so far. I really like that story of the name. I think we may get back to it later in the podcast, but it it is so fitting as we're talking about the clean economy and kind of everything that the clean economy encompasses. And especially on this podcast, the focus has always been energy transition, but there's just so much to not only the energy transition, but decarbonization of society that it, it's almost like that similar story where If you can decarbonize energy, you end up decarbonizing so many different steps along the way. And I think that that is a, it's such a strong message, but this is one of those messages that seems to not get out as easily as, as the idea of simply having, having reliable energy. 
And so you've been in communications, you said 37 years. And that's a a fairly long time. You you said politics, the environmental movement, and now more focused on on those public relations and marketing. Have you seen any major differences in those kind of three different sectors in the same industry? There are significant differences, and I think I would sum up my experience as follows. The profit motive does not remove human dysfunction, but it does lower the way it manifests quite a bit. So in politics, in nonprofits, there is a fair amount of diversity in the motivations that people have when they do the work. And some of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't doesn't produce a lot of rational behavior. And there's a fair amount of just just sheer goofiness in, in the motivations that people bring to trying to achieve organizational success. So the, what I found in these three epics in my own career, that it's just a bit easier and a little bit more predictable and more it's a clear path to the work table in the private sector. I don't see myself ever going back to what we call .org or .gov work. .com is my home. That's probably where we're going to stay the rest of my career. Hmm. I I like that analogy, and, and that's helpful to put that into perspective. Now, in the .com world, here we're talking about the clean economy, I think that most of my listeners should have an understanding of the clean economy, but I want to make sure we're all on the same plane here. So can you give me kind of what is your definition of the clean economy? Where does TigerCom work? And what I guess there's a roundabout way of asking, what kind of companies do you work with that that is in this clean economy space? I'll take your two questions in order. The The term clean economy is relatively new. It's not as heavily socialized as the term clean tech. But in essence, clean tech is a subset of clean economy. So it was for a while renewable energy, then it became clean tech and climate tech, and now it's clean economy. What's the difference? Basically, it's a broadening out to include more sectors. So as we have mapped the U.S. economy, there's roughly 22 to 23 different parts of it. And some of them are capitalized enough to actually be in the news and viable and big enough. Electric vehicles, battery storage, solar, wind, pace lending. Some of them are quite niche and haven't really scaled yet. Tidal energy, wave energy, So if you think about these terms and how they've advanced, basically the difference is they've gotten more inclusive. They pulled more sectors in. So clean economy now encompasses B2C products, organic food, energy efficiency devices for your home. There's a lot of B2C products as well as B2B. Okay. And then just just to clarify, B2C means business to consumer and B2B is business to business? Yes, thank you. And thanks for being 
being on jargon patrol with me. I'll need a little <laughs> bit of that intervention as we talk. Oh, don't worry. I'm not an economist and I I'm a technical person. I like being in the subsurface, being in the rocks, really digging in and developing these new ideas, new tools, new technology. So it's very fun to be talking to the side that really helps these technologies get out. Now, as we talk about that, what I guess are some of the challenges you see? Why why did you make that change from going to .gov to .org and now in the in the commercial side of it, in the dot-com realm. Yeah, unbeknownst to me, the idea of this firm was was birthed with the first textbook I read and the first college course that I took. So I went to Ohio State University, and the first class I took required me to read a textbook by what was then, or who was then, the world's foremost environmental trends counter, a guy named Lester Brown. I'm I hope he's still with us. I fear he is not, but he had written at least 20 some books by the time I read the 29th day, which essentially made the case that we are as a, as a human species, we are living our global lives in a wildly unsustainable way. And it occurred to me that this was the world's greatest challenge and would be for the rest of my life. And if I wanted to do something that was contributing to the betterment of the world that we live in and the country that I'm so proud of, that this was my calling. I would devote the rest of my life to contributing to solving global economic unsustainability. So I went into politics to try to learn the intersection of politics, policy, and media, check that box after 10 years at the state and the federal level. And then I went into the nonprofit world and worked for two national environmental groups, and I learned the policy and advocacy side of this effort. But along the way, I had three realizations. First is we were trying to beat something with nothing. We would say no to coal, but we didn't have something to say yes to. Second, that the infrastructure to deliver those that alternative narrative was quite rickety. It was, it was thin. It was not very well-developed. And it was poorly staffed and underfunded. And it remains so today, although it's quite a bit better. And then the third was that there was no pay-forward mechanism on best practices. So someone who was an aspiring young clean economy communicator was having to learn my from my first mistake instead of learning from my 51st mistake. And I set up this firm to address those three gaps to the best I could. So we, we've started this firm and specifically run it to help clean economy companies disrupt polluting dirty incumbents. Yeah, I think that's a it's a very interesting point that we we want to replace and I'm I'm going to walk through this a little bit. We want to replace the existing existing power source if you will with something that is clean. But I think there's two different aspects here that I think I'd like for you to to weigh in on. The first point being that, as you said, if you try to replace coal with nothing, ultimately you end up with nothing. So there's a, a problem in itself. And another problem that we have right now is we're primarily doing coal and trying to replace it with something that's intermittent, like solar and wind. 
And ultimately, that can lead to budding new economies, like you pointed out, battery storage and batteries. But it it seems like a seems like there's a lot that happens in between those two points that people don't understand or or need to they need to share and and be able to uh they need to be able to explain and i think that is part of where we start to lose things yes that's my experience as well so when it comes to when it comes to i guess those specific challenges that you see why you created Tiger Common and what we're trying to, what you're trying to help people communicate. What are the challenges with a clean tech company or or somebody in the clean economy? Why are we losing that message that we're trying to get out? I don't know that we're losing it as much as we're not delivering it. And I think that's, there's a, a subtle but important difference there. I don't think we need to touch on it, but just note to selves. I started the firm because I had a belief that if we're going to move the economy onto a more sustainable footing, we would have to disrupt polluting industries with other industries. And you're only going to do that with industries. So you cannot sit in an environmental group and regulate the coal industry into sustainability. Some industries simply have to go. They cannot be kept around. Some industries, like cement making, can be made much more sustainable, but with a different service offering, likely from a different set of companies. And it's to those disruptors that we we tend to tailor the service offering. Now, why do they need our services? Because most of the clean economy is made up not of new industries. We have some, micromobility, for example scooters and bikes from companies like Lime and Bird and Bolt. There is no incumbent last mile transportation system that you getting on a scooter or a bike is going to disrupt or say no to. You're not going to take a cab to go 10 blocks. You're going to walk the 10 blocks or you're probably not going to go the 10 blocks. But here we have a new industry that really isn't disrupting anything. It's just growing a new service offering. That's relatively rare. Mm -hmm. If you're a solar company, a wind company, a battery storage company, EV fast charging equipment company, you are directly disrupting incumbents that are sectors within an industry that you are a part of. And there is a fundamental difference. We have a podcast called Scaling Clean the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. A question we ask of all of our guest CEOs is, is running a clean economy company different than running a non-clean economy company, a company in a more mature sector? Universally, the answer is yes, because they have to balance the fact that they, they need to grow and they need to succeed and they need to make money, but they have to do that in the face of very mature, powerful incumbents who have the bandwidth to see the disruptive threat coming and fetter the disruptors before they can eat much market share out of their own pockets. So the disrupted are constantly reacting to the disruptors and the disruptors must manage that with fewer resources than the disrupted 
have. In other words, the new guys are contesting with the old guys, and the old guys can see the new guys coming and have way more resources to fend off the new guys to take it out of jargon land. That's a really interesting point that I guess when I when I think about that and what you're saying there, that the the old legacy companies are are basically on the defensive. And it sounds like they're on the defensive pretty much all the time. And I think we can see that right now, just bringing this into the oil and gas space as you see all of these companies making record profits right now. But those record profits are a function of of the high gas prices, high high oil and natural gas prices. And you see this as after a 10-year period of record low profits. So the oil and gas companies, being that incumbent industry, they are now having to defend a a one-year really great, really great accounting book versus trying to explain for the past 15 years, we've had a average, say, seven or eight percent IRR, which is not that good if you're an investor. So I think it's it's interesting, even from that regard, that even if the even if the incumbent industries are have what am I saying? Even with the incumbent industries not necessarily being in the best spot, they are always having to defend themselves. So I'm curious, that's a long-winded way to bring up this question. How and why can these larger companies continue to, I guess, squash the little new guy who is coming into the market if, by public opinion, it seems like they have a better product, a better offering, and something that people should want to buy? Well, that's easy because we have, at least in this country, we've got a form of legalized political corruption called campaign financing. And I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic here. It's pretty clear. I could give you example after example. So here, in, we just put out a white paper that got picked up in a couple of trade publications where we make the case that clean economy companies are pursuing policy outcomes as well as commercial outcomes, but they're pursuing these policy outcomes with almost no political power because they don't build it, which means that we're politically begging. Now, why is it important? Because if you look back um, some 70 years ago, and this is an example that we cite, there's a storied example of oil industry thuggery where they, where the Texas oil and gas barons in the 1950s did not like the fact that one of Franklin uh, FDR's appointees to the power regulatory uh, body it was a predecessor bureaucracy to FERC. This guy was named the guy was by the name of Leland Olds was actually had the audacity to enforce a 1938 anti-price gouging law passed as part of the New Deal. And the Texas oil and gas guys didn't like it because they wanted to price gouge Midwestern and New England um, population centers with the gas that they were shipping up to them. And Olds was in their way. So Olds, FDR dies, Truman succeeds him, Truman renominates Olds. And the gas industry got a freshman senator by the name of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who they had showered with campaign donations. They loaned him their campaign plane to fly around. 
And they got him to basically lead a really sophisticated political ambush that wiped out Leland Olds. It denied him the nomination. And I can go into details about it, but basically it's a very sophisticated operation detailed in in um, Stephen Caro's book, The Master of the Senate. It's like 50-page passage, and it, it's it's ugly. It's ruthless. It's very well executed. And the result was Olds was denied the nomination. Uh, re- he wasn't renominated. Sorry. His renomination was rejected. The industry put a patsy, it got Truman to put a patsy in who undid most of Olds' reforms. The industry netted 30, 40, 50 million dollars. 70 years ago, that was real money. And I'm guessing they don't, there's no details on this, but they probably paid pennies on the dollar to execute that. So that was 70 years ago that they did this. Let's fast forward to right now. If you read Miami Herald or Orlando Sentinel coverage, Florida Power and Light, which is the the dominant utility in Florida, spent ratepayer money in this incredibly complex political money laundering scheme where they set up a daisy chain of companies, of shell companies, to fund a bunch of nefarious activities. They had private detectives, tail reporters. They got a a right-wing conservative outlet. They bought it, and they used it as a way to attack journalists in writing that were exposing Florida Florida Power and Light uh, polluting practices and anti-competitiveness practices. They, uh, the, the CEO of Florida Power and Light was actually um, ordering up stories from this bought and paid for outlet, which of course was not advertised as such. And, th- and it goes on. They, they interfered with local elections and this sort of thing. So there's a through line here. And I could just give you example after example after example of from, a, from an amoral standpoint are highly sophisticated, really aggressive and cutthroat tactics to use disinformation and government to fetter the growth of clean energy. And that's the landscape that our folks are trying to succeed in. So it's not a meritocracy. It's a meritocracy-based Wild West. And there is a fair amount of room for eye-gouging and hair-pulling, which goes on almost all the time, and it is not a both-sides false equivalency scenario. And we have to struggle mightily to get our sectors to understand that the incumbents are playing a full contact game and they're just not going to hand over market share willingly when they have hundreds of trillions of dollars of sunk costs in existing fossil fuel infrastructure. They're just not going to do it. I see what you're saying there. And, and basically, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's, there's a few different aspects there, but I think what the most important is is that the that it's not a it's not a one to one it's not an apples to apples it's not a a purely capitalistic society where the where the best product ends up winning no way there's, yeah no way there's there's that aspect there of the of companies who have who have built a lot of infrastructure, built a lot of of market demand, and preferably they want to keep it that way. And that it is it's understandable. I think that there is definitely some 
some dirty practices that you are that you're explaining there that would be better that we didn't have those. But I think that almost every guest that I have on has some comment on how there is brokenness and and I guess you could say areas of the political realm or the environmental realm or or something about the larger narrative that is going on that could and should be fixed. And I think that is that's kind of where you're coming in with TigerCom and looking at how can you best promote and show these companies that have this great clean solution. So so all that aside, what is going on in in how we actually are selling this stuff? How how are you approaching getting these companies to I guess get that larger market share? Fundamentally, when we work with companies to improve their lead flow, in other words, their sales, we are helping them most of the time update their marketing practices so they are more tightly integrated with the way they sell their products. The research, the academic research on marketing and on Americans buying habits shows that Now, pretty much for everything apart from an impulse purchase, the first thing Americans are going to do when they go from not going to buy to I'm going to buy something is they do online search and research. They they research on their own through searching and content. And most legacy marketing practices, particularly in the B2B industrial goods and services realm, and that's a lot of clean economy, still puts the burden of early stage customer education on sales teams. And the problem is that the research is showing us that buyers don't want to take or make contact with the seller during that early stage of their buying journey. They want to be on their own. So our job here is to make sure that we are offering resources, often in the form of content, that helps educate the newly decided buyer who's beginning that journey, looking at the options, understanding what's going on, and educating him or herself. And it's in that zone that we do most of our work. It's an interesting point that it is content development and i would almost say that that is a it's almost like you're teaching the potential buyer what the value is there and what the what the product is in general now how and why is that important in b2b sales and if i may more important than teaching the customer about the product it's making sure that the product offering is explained in terms of what it can do for the customer. And we find that in long lead time, high priced, high technical sales, a lot of the collateral is very jargony. It requires expertise to understand it. And Most of the buyers have some expertise, but some of them don't. There's a lot of variety in people's level of expertise. And 
Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Industries, said something once I, I've always remembered, which is any fool can complicate something. It takes a master to simplify it. So if you show me a company or a product that's sophisticated and complex in what it does, I'll show you a product that needs simplicity of narrative 10 times out of 10. There just never is a reason to be dorky, wonky, and complicated off the bat. There's time to get there. But when you first introduce a potential buyer to what you're selling, it should be in the simplest, clearest, and most emotionally compelling terms you can make it. I really like that point. I think that's something that I have seen. I was in academia for for more years than I care to mention, but there was this aspect that you saw from the beginning of my academic career to the end of some of these major publications where you're doing this very high-end, highly technical research and you have your abstract that you can't even read if you are a non-technical person and they the publication started to make you submit a non-technical abstract, which tried to break down your work so that anybody could read it and understand the goals of the work, what you did, and why that matters for advancing whatever your field was. And I think that is is going right along with your point that as we develop these highly technical, complicated solutions, we need to be able to make sure everybody understands what it is, what it does from from a high level, and then most importantly, why does that matter and how does that make things better? Yeah. You know, there's a there's something I've realized only recently, which is what that what those publications did for researchers is essentially insisting that they strategically structure their thinking to make their articulation better. So if I say to customers, as we often do, we need the value proposition of this company to pass the supermarket checkout test. So if you and I go to the grocery store this weekend and we're behind somebody who's also in line who sells insurance for a living or drives a truck or cleans houses, can we explain to him, her, or them what we mean to say in terms that they can get? And if if your value proposition can pass the supermarket checkout test, you have, you have met the Richard Branson requirement. Yeah. And, and just coming from personal experience, trying to explain my research or the things that I'm working on, it takes me much longer than a supermarket checkout time to explain some of those. And when I see those eyes glaze over, I know that I've, I've lost them and, the most important part there is that now, now you don't have that audience to actually tell why it matters. And to your point, getting into the weeds and getting into the super technical, that doesn't matter if you <clears throat> don't have somebody interested. Well, more than that, the, the research on human cognition and the way that humans interact with experiences show that we are emotional creatures first, rational creatures at distance second. In other words, even in consequential 
complex, due diligence-laden decisions, we must, the way our brains are wired, we must relate to the subject matter at a gut level first. Once we do that, then we can descend a level of some, from simplicity down to a more technical level and, and interact with the merits of the idea. But humans have to get an idea first emotionally before they can connect intellectually. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actionable intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Inevris is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Inevris has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Inevris.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. That is, it It seems to make so much sense, right? If you if you don't connect with it, then, then you don't really care. So when it comes to a, a highly technical product, say something like solar panels or or even something that may be more technical like a distributed energy management system or something else that that I know nothing about that's in the clean economy can you give me some examples of how you break that down and and make that personal connection do you have any examples from recent work that you've done i i do and i'll i'll give you one so we did some work a while back for a company that was offering repair services for the owners of wind farms. So these are large pieces of equipment. The blades are long and they're getting longer. The towers are very tall. And when something goes wrong at the top of that tower, getting up to the tower will require a very large, very tall crane. This company was offering a a climbing tower. So you didn't have to bring in a big ladder. You brought in a much more compact rig that basically climbed the outside of the tower. So you can get it there faster. You can get it up the tower faster to make the repair and it's at a lower cost. So why is that beneficial to an asset owner? There's a lot of things that are bottom line related. There's savings, etc. But what's the emotional benefit? If you're an asset owner, if your job is to manage that wind farm, you are going to be judged on the amount of uptime that your equipment has in the course of a year. How much power is it producing? How efficiently is it being run? So your job security depends on doing, performing that task well, and your, your, you have peace of mind when you bring in a cost-saving time-saving way to fix the things that are going to break as they do on all industrial facilities. So we talked about the, we led the product announcement with the emotional benefit of the product first. Hmm. Okay. And then from there, once you were able to make that connection and show that value in the uptime and really having that direct connection to uptime and job security, then it's a lot easier to sell the value or then be able to say why this product 
ultimately helps you. And then there's that clear connection of this product is helping me keep my job. Yes. Very interesting. And so I think there's there's probably dozens of those kind of examples that we could walk through. I instead of walking through a bunch of those examples, I think I would like to hear just like a maybe one more conceptual way of walking somebody through that. If if there is a founder out there, somebody who has this technical technical idea that is going to solve the world's energy crisis, where and how would you suggest walking through that idea going from that emotional connection to the logical connection or how how do we walk through those ideas to help because we've got the technical knowledge and the technical product and we see what it solves but how do we actually make that emotional connection there by understanding the customer and his her or their reality so if we if if our clients understand their customers as well as they need to to succeed, they're going to be able to walk in their shoes, so to speak. They're going to understand, these are my hopes, these are my fears, these are my worries. And within that framework, the you can much more readily spot the emotional benefit the product delivers. Hmm. That's a good point. If we know our potential customers, then we know how to make them feel safe and secure and ultimately what what they need to make them feel safe and secure and and hopefully that is our product yes. whatever that product is yes well mike thank you for walking through these now i've got a few final questions these are the questions i ask all of my guests the first one is what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend Boy, there's a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I'll tell you, just going back to our name, if you ever want to read a book that you should not start for your bedtime reading because you won't put it down, it'll be six o'clock in the morning and you'll be turning the last page. I would read a book called The Tiger by John Valiant. He is an amazing writer and he writes about this incident that took place in Siberia that's a real live tiger version of jaws the movie jaws and it's it, it, it's incredibly riveting and for us it's particularly exciting because the the hero in the story was a park ranger named yuri and we um in the, in past years we bought yuri his truck that he uses to go around and patrol uh for poachers so it was very gratifying but the book is it's an amazing read i i totally recommend it that's great. It sounds good, mostly because I've seen Jaws and I enjoyed it. So I can only imagine a a true story, especially set in the Siberian jungle. So the the next question I have is, when will we be net zero as a society? You're going to have to ask smarter people than me, like perhaps Mark Jacobson at Stanford. Um, I, I I don't. I don't know. All I know is I'm going to push like hell for us to get there as fast as possible. Hmm. 
Yeah, that is, I'm amazed that whenever I talk to anybody, most often they say, I have no idea. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to try as hard as I can to make it whatever everybody else is saying. And I think that's the, that's the whole point of the question is to, is to think about it and, and really, really ask yourself, is this a goal that I am willing to help contribute to? Or is this some big, large, ephemeral thing that, that I don't, that I don't know about and don't want to know about? Do I want to just keep my head in the sand? Because I think once we start really thinking about it and facing what it means to be net zero, what it means to continue letting letting more CO2 into the air, what what all of that means for the future of society, I think once you start dealing with and and having those conversations, that is when you can start making an effort towards towards net zero or yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I'll say a few things first. It's not emissions; it's it's pollution, and that's important because the knock on the door is getting much lard, louder. And this is not our grandkids; this is us. Like, unless you're in hospice right now, you can guarantee that you are going to hear about, if not personally experience, the downsides of us polluting the only place we have as a home. And here's the the good news. The reality is that pollution is waste and waste is inefficient in an economy and waste is dumb. So if we clean up our economy and other countries don't do it from a global competitive standpoint, that's awesome because we're going to have the most efficient economy. And I want that for America. I'd also like other countries to clean up their economies, but I'm focused on this one because it is a national competitiveness concern. The more sustainable our economy is, the better it will be for Americans. Yep. Yep. I agree. The The more sustainable, the the stronger, more resilient our economy is, especially as we talk about the the future of of the world i think that will put us in a a much stronger position as a nation yes now now the last question i have is actually you get to ask me a question are you a climate optimist or a climate pessimist and why that is a good question i i'd like to get a clarification when you say climate optimist versus climate pessimist what do you mean by those terms do you think we're going to pull this out in time to to not have mad max or thunderdome be our reality that is that's another great great question and just for a little context i was at the geothermal rising conference this past week and if anybody knows about nevada during the the last week in August, first week in September, that is Burning Man time. So, so for a little bit of comedic humor, I got to see many people going to Burning Man. Many of those having that steampunk style and and living in a almost 
pseudo Mad Max world. And I can't say that it would necessarily be that bad. It looked like a lot of fun and potentially a an enjoyable experience. But all jokes aside, I am I am a climate optimist. I have been working or I have been part of the geothermal industry and geothermal community for over 10 years now. I am all in on on making the world net zero or negative carbon, really just making it a place where we can live and breathe and have a clean functioning society. And I think that that is, you have to be a climate optimist in order to be able to go to work every day, motivated and excited for what you do and in order to help make energy cleaner. So I, I want to preface that, that I think it's, it is a long road. I think 2050 is, is doable, but even, even the idea of net zero is a, it's a net equation, which means it's going to be kind of this, this complete solution. So it is going to be kind of to our whole conversation. It's going to be very difficult to figure out how to live life without hydrocarbons. And I don't know if it, I don't know if it's ever really going to be possible to live life fully without hydrocarbons. That is something that, that I have not wrapped my head around yet. I don't know what that looks like, but I think that where I'm at and what I'm doing is to get as much clean energy out of the ground and into the grid and sustainably produced as possible. And so that is, that I think requires optimism. It's a, I I like it. Yep. Well, Mike, thank you for joining me on the show today. I think that everybody will appreciate the, just the simple understanding of what it takes, how we got where we are, why we're here, why green energy and the clean economy is not growing gangbusters the way that we say it needs to, and understanding how and why and what to do about that. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? I just enjoy being on, and I I, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you again, Mike, and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating, leave a review, share this episode with a friend. Doing these quick and easy actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great energy stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And if you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. If you mention OGGN, they will give you a free day pass. Whenever I'm in Houston, I'm at the Canon. And it's also where we host our monthly industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me a message, find me on LinkedIn, contact me in some way. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network.
Learn more at OGGN.com.